So here's something I've been really excited to announce, and now I can. The fall tour of Stay Tuned with Preet is on sale now. Here's the short version. Go to cafe.com slash tour right now and pick your show. That will take you right to the ticketing site. That's cafe.com slash T-O-U-R. First stop, New York on Thursday, October 25th. You can come see me and Jeffrey Tubin, New Yorker staff writer and CNN chief legal analyst. Wait, he's the chief legal analyst? Anyway, come see Jeffrey Tubin and me at New York City's Town Hall on October 25th at 8 p.m. We have a lot to talk about. On November 29th, Kumail Nanjiani will join me on stage at the Wilshire Ebel Theater in Los Angeles. That's right. Oscar nominated for The Big Sick, my favorite character Dinesh in HBO's Silicon Valley, and yes, he played Brad in Hot Tub Time Machine 2. It's my first live show in Los Angeles. I hope to see you there. Go to cafe.com slash tour, cafe.com slash T-O-U-R. Don't miss out. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Involuntary patriotism is not patriotism, it's North Korea, you know? It's that's that simple, right? Involuntary patriotism is it's a contradiction in terms. That's Sally Jenkins. She's a feature writer at The Washington Post. I speak with her about justice in American sports, the controversial Serena Williams match at the U.S. Open, the kneeling protests in the NFL, and her friendship with cyclist Lance Armstrong. Before we get to the show, I just want to remind folks of one important fact. Today, this very day, marks the one-year anniversary of this podcast. It was a year ago today that we put on the show with Leon Panetta. Uh, stay tuned to the end of today's show to hear some more about what the last year has been like. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Betterment. Sometimes average is great. I definitely take a more average political climate than the one we're living through. But when it comes to money, average isn't really good enough. Betterment is the investing tool for people who won't settle for average investing. Because really, if there's one area where being above average is especially nice, investments are probably it. Betterment combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise to help you make the most of your money. With a personalized portfolio, they help you make more from your investments. Then... They guide you along the way with advice to help you make smart financial decisions. Their simple online tools let you track progress towards your goals, so you can always feel like a smart, savvy investor. Look, you're probably online anyway, checking headlines and bracing for the latest news alert. Why not take a minute to check on your financials? With Betterment's online tools, you can. Investing involves risk. Betterment can be your guide. And now, stay tuned with Preet listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Preet. That's Betterment.com slash Preet. Betterment. Outsmart average. So obviously the big news this week and an issue on which I've gotten an unbelievable number of questions is the Brett Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court. So about a week ago when we were recording, uh, he seemed to be sailing towards a, a vote in the Judiciary Committee this week that would have been basically party line, which would have gotten him out of committee and up for a vote in the entire Senate in relatively short order. That has been upended, as you all know. And at the time of this recording, at about noon on Wednesday, September 19th, the vote for tomorrow has been postponed because there has been a serious allegation made by a woman named Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, who is a psychologist 
in California who claims, as you've all seen, that a number of years ago, 35 or 36 some odd years ago, when she was 15 and Brett Kavanaugh was 17, they were both at a party in a suburb in Maryland, and he attempted to rape her. And in the room during the time of the attempted attack was a friend of his named Mark Judge. For his part, Brett Kavanaugh uh, denies completely that he ever engaged in such conduct in high school or ever uh, after that, and was never at a party like that. So the question is, who's telling the truth? And whether or not you believe one party or the other, what should happen? So the first issue is procedural, right? What, what happens next? Because Republicans control the Senate, the only way for the vote to have been postponed or derailed in some way is if fellow Republican senators stood up and said they wanted more process and said that they wanted to have more investigation. And two did. Jeff Flake, who's been on the show, and as a member of the Judiciary Committee, made clear that he wanted to hear from the person who made the allegations, and also perhaps Brett Kavanaugh, and another senator who's not on the committee, but is an important vote for the Republican caucus on the Kavanaugh nomination, is Republican moderate Susan Collins from Maine. So once those two, but particularly Flake, made clear on Sunday that they wanted to hear more and they shouldn't proceed, Chuck Grassley basically had no choice but to postpone the vote. And then set for Monday, this coming Monday, an open hearing to which I believe they have invited both Dr. Ford, who makes the allegations, and also Brett Kavanaugh. It's interesting that I've seen a lot of senators get up in the well, including Mitch McConnell and others. And the thing that they have been complaining about and they have been upset about is not the content of the allegation so much as the timing of when Dianne Feinstein came forward with it and when the identity of the alleged victim came out in the press in the Washington Post. And what I find humorous, if it weren't so serious, is that it doesn't make any sense at all. The allegation seems to be that Dianne Feinstein had this letter and knew about the allegations of attempted rape against Brett Kavanaugh and saved it for tactical reasons until after the regular hearings took place and we were on the cusp of a vote in the Judiciary Committee so that she could derail the nomination and derail the confirmation. That doesn't make any sense to me. As everyone knows, and as Diane Feinstein has made clear, she was trying to do right by Dr. Ford, who reluctantly had come forward, who didn't want her name to be used. And if you really wanted to do damage to the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, and you really wanted to have the, the maximum possibility of destroying the confirmation of that man, and you had the information about the alleged attempted rape, the time to have brought it forward, if that was your goal, was during the hearings, when everyone was paying attention. Not after they're over, on the off-chance thought that perhaps there will be a delay in the vote, because as we see now, that almost didn't happen. There still may not be much of a delay. The, the vote could happen as soon as Wednesday, whether or not there's a hearing on Monday. So I think there's a lot of bad faith uh, on top of everything else in these allegations against Dianne Feinstein. I think it's a, a delicate, difficult, sensitive thing when someone comes forward, knowing how people are treated these days when they make allegations like this. We've seen it all too often in the Me Too movement, that you come forward, your life is upended, she's gotten death threats, she's had to move away from her home, all of which she predicted and all of which came true. And so when someone is trying to, in the interim, before trying to persuade someone to put their name to an allegation, I think it's appropriate, fair, and honorable that she kept the identity secret. And when it otherwise leaked out, well, then that's when the rubber meets the road. And that's when the vote got postponed, as I think it should have. 
and a hearing was set. As of this recording, it sounds like she's not coming on Monday, although she has not, as far as I've seen, definitively ruled it out. And the basis that she and her lawyer have given is that they would like, before they come forward and before she goes under oath to testify, they would like the FBI to conduct its own investigation. So what senators are asking for, at least on one side, is that the FBI take a look at the allegations, interview the appropriate people for purposes of determining whether or not it's true that bears on the fitness of this person to be on the Supreme Court. For them to do that, it's my understanding that the president has to direct them to do so. And the president, oddly, Donald Trump, has said, well, the FBI doesn't do that. And it seems a little nutty to me, because since when does Donald Trump let the FBI direct matters as opposed to the other way around? So it seems as of noon today, we're at an impasse that Dr. Ford will not come testify unless there's first some you know, investigation done by the FBI, so some facts are brought to bear. Now remember, as should be obvious to everyone, this is not one of those things that's unprecedented. It's not without any precedent. There is a precedent. It was Anita Hill making sexual misconduct allegations against then-nominee Clarence Thomas back in 1991. And back then, before the Me Too movement, before there were uh, greater numbers of women in the Senate, and one would hope before there was greater sensitivity to and acknowledgement of the rights of women and the belief people should have in credible accusations being made, even back then, what happened was Clarence Thomas testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then these allegations came out after that, just like we have here with Dr. Ford. And Joe Biden, who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee, reopened the hearings. And there was another hearing, like we're talking about for this Monday. But in between the allegations being made by Anita Hill and the second hearing at which both Anita Hill, the person making the allegations, and the nominee testified, guess what happened? There was an investigation. Guess who did it? It was the FBI. The FBI is the most professional law enforcement organization that I know, and I work with them very closely for a lot of years. And I feel that they're being politicized again. I think everyone, whatever side you're on, whatever you think of the ideology of Brett Kavanaugh, the allegation is a serious one. It has credibility attached to it, even if you don't fully buy it, and that everyone should want to get to the truth. Um, There's no reason why senators from both sides of the aisle and the American public shouldn't become satisfied that that the fullest inquiry possible has been made. Look, on the Republican side, uh, they don't want to be derailed. There is the desire to have someone of a particular view on the Supreme Court, and Brett Kavanaugh seems to fit the bill. But there's another thing going on, too. There's another dynamic here, right? The election is coming up. And although it seems likely that Republicans will win in November and keep the Senate, there is a decent possibility that that won't happen. And that if they don't get Kavanaugh confirmed in relatively short order, maybe Democrats will control the Senate and they will do to the next nominee or to this nominee what Republicans did to Merrick Garland. So there's a lot at stake here, but I think it will depend on the individual judgments and reputations of certain senators like McConnell, like Susan Collins from Maine, like Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, and from Jeff Flake, who sits on the Judiciary Committee from Arizona. Um, I'm, I'm loath to predict what's going to happen in the next few days, um, but I will say that I think the FBI should do its investigation. Dr. Ford should come testify. Brett Kavanaugh should come testify again. People should ask their questions and then make their own judgments. Now, at the end of the day, there may not be any full certainty as to what is true and what is not. And so the question, I guess, arises, 
you know, how is a senator supposed to make his or her decision on how to vote? You know, what's the standard that has to be met with respect to this allegation? You know, I want to remind people of something. It's not a court of law. This is not a trial about whether or not the crime of attempted rape was committed. And it's not subject to a beyond a reasonable doubt standard that we have under the Constitution in this country. People already have some reasons that they want to support Brett Kavanaugh no matter what. Other people have reasons why they don't want to support Brett Kavanaugh because they think that he's not right for the court, because they think he's been misleading about a number of other issues during his hearings, as Ron Klain pointed out when he was here a short time ago. And so for them, the question is not, do you believe absolutely 100% that the allegations are true? It's whether or not they think that the additional allegation is credible enough that it gives them further doubt. And I think it's okay to have this standard. A senator is entitled to vote his or her own conscience on the issue. So we'll see what happens. Next question comes from Rennick04, who writes, really enjoy the podcast. What, if anything, have you gleaned from the recent Manafort plea deal? I feel like the noose is getting tighter around this corrupt administration. Well, I don't know if it's getting tighter around the administration. It's certainly getting tighter around Paul Manafort and everyone else who comes within the crosshairs of the Mueller investigation. It seems to me that time after time after time, whether you're Michael Flynn or George Papadopoulos or Paul Manafort, that your best option is to surrender quickly. And Paul Manafort is an object lesson in, I think, not particularly good lawyering, not particularly good strategy. If at the end of the day, he was going to give it up and cooperate and give the prosecution information, the best time to have done that would have been to have been remorseful at the beginning and plead at the beginning and give up the information at the beginning. And it seemed like the Manafort was trying to game things out. And he got convicted at trial, which shows the public that, you know, a neutral jury that even had on it people who were supporters of the president found proof beyond a reasonable doubt to convict him on a number of counts. He had another trial pending. And in between those two trials decided to cooperate and plead guilty. So the, the prosecutors have... You know, the best trophy you could possibly have in a case. You have both a conviction, you know, an, an open proceeding with a conviction by a jury. And you also have an admission of guilt in the form of a plea by the defendant. That's a very rare thing. And now they have information that they can use against other folks. So my sense is that Manafort is providing substantial assistance because otherwise the prosecutors would not have accepted his cooperation after having in their pocket a guilty conviction on a number of counts. And so you can expect charges against other people. I'm not saying who they might be because I don't know. But you can expect that they would have only agreed to accept his cooperation if there are other people against whom they can bring charges up the food chain or at least lateral to him. You know, the funny thing is, in, in answering your questions, if we'd been taping this podcast just a few days ago on Saturday, we probably would have spent all our time talking about Paul Manafort. But news moves at the speed of light. And uh, within days, we're talking about the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation, and maybe next week there'll be something else. But keep your eye on the ball and remember that these cases are going to keep coming, that the idea that Donald Trump's lawyer suggested last year that the Mueller investigation would be wrapped up imminently or before Thanksgiving or before the end of 2017 was nonsense, is nonsense. There's a lot still yet to come. My guest this week is Sally Jenkins. She writes about sports as a feature writer at the Washington Post. She also covers other things, including, as you'll hear, U.S. attorneys. We talk about justice and fairness in American sports. And one of the reasons I asked her to be on the show was she wrote what was pretty much the definitive, immediate, viral article 
about the final in the U.S. Open a couple of weeks ago, where Serena Williams had a fairly controversial run-in with the chair umpire. We also talk about Colin Kaepernick and the NFL protests around police brutality, the NFL's own brutality problems, and Sally's friendship with cyclist Lance Armstrong, who went from darling to villain when his doping was revealed. That's coming up. Stay tuned. You know what's not smart? So many things. Lying to federal investigators, picking fights on Twitter, eating bad pizza, and another not-so-smart thing? The way hiring used to be. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Read the right resumes with ZipRecruiter. And now more than ever, we all know the importance of surrounding yourself with the best people. Now there's a smarter way at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. That rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com P-R-E-E-T. Stay tuned to Supported by SimpliSafe. SimpliSafe is home security done right. And here's what I love about SimpliSafe. They are ready for anything. If a storm takes out your power, SimpliSafe is ready. If an intruder cuts your phone line, SimpliSafe is ready. If they destroy your keypad or siren, SimpliSafe will still get you the help you need. And look, maybe it's overkill. Maybe you don't need to be ready for every worst-case scenario. But SimpliSafe is always ready, just in case. That's what makes it great. SimpliSafe is a smart home alarm system that's easy to set up and easy to use. You choose the features, hardware, and service that's right for you. Now, SimpliSafe could cost an arm and a leg. Maybe it should, but it doesn't. It's just $14.99 a month. No contracts, no hidden fees. SimpliSafe has gotten an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for 10 years running, and they have over 40,000 five-star reviews online. That's more than I have. So go today to simplysafe.com slash Preet. That's simplysafe.com slash Preet. Sally Jenkins, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so this is a little bit different. You're the first sort of person from the world of sports, a sports writer, to be on the show. But I want to mention to the audience that you and I have met before. And the first time that we met was in my office when I was U.S. attorney. And you were the one asking the questions. But it was in March of 2015, and you wrote in the Washington Post, you know, a fairly thorough, I thought pretty fair, profile of me as a U.S. attorney. And you wrote the following. And so I think your prose is excellent. Very good mastery of the language. So you describe me like this. The most powerful prosecutor in the country, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, occupies a four-square chamber flooded with relentless government ceiling light, which makes his charcoal suit all the darker, and his white shirt so stiff it could pour itself a glass of water, all the whiter. Okay, so how the hell does a shirt pour itself a glass of water? <laughs> could you explain the metaphor? Because I've been trying to understand. Like, I get it. It sounds well, I just, cool, I felt like your but shirt, that doesn't make any sense. I felt like your shirt could have stood up on its own and walked across the room. So why don't you tell the audience, like, how stiff is my shirt today? You're very relaxed. The minute I walked in, I told you. I said, you've lost 10 years yeah, since you stopped being a prosecutor. Very rock and roll. All right, well, let's rock and roll then. So um, the other thing that, that I wanted to mention 
that I want to blame you for is, you know, we became friendly after meeting and I had some thoughts about writing a book and you've written a number of books and, and you encouraged me to do it. And so I did. So I want to say I will never forgive you. <laughs> That's right, because writing is is breaking rocks with a shovel, really. It's difficult. So first of all, congratulations. Thank and you. Well, it's not, you know, it's I, not published yet. I'm not done editing it. But as I told you when we first brought this up, I'll read that book. I mean, Oh, I hope so. That's why I'm counting on it. If all the guests of the show read the book, that's like it's like 40 books I get to sell. <laughs> it's pretty good. Right? It's more than zero. Um, and you you write about a lot of things, not just sports. Is sports inherently easier to interest people in because the nature of it is is interesting? I think so. It's a highly emotional, you know, volatile subject for people as the Serena Williams match demonstrated. I mean, that's probably one of the best read things I've ever written at any level, book or magazine or newspaper. A couple million people read that uh, piece. In real time. In real time, yeah. So, yeah, it's easier to immediately engage people on something they're already feeling pretty hot about. The engine's already running pretty hot in the first place. Why was a sports columnist assigned to write a profile of the U.S. attorney? Because it was my idea, first of all. It was. It was. Um, You know, I, I, I write a lot of things outside of sports. I I've written political profiles over the years for the Washington Post. Um, so it wasn't because of my perceived tremendous athleticism? It was because of your perceived— I thought that's I mean, what it was. I live in New York, for one thing, even though I work for the Washington Post. So you're in, you're, you were, at the time, and remain a very intriguing figure. Oh, nice with the remain. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. You edited yourself in real time. You were— and still are it was, it, was, it was a very figure. definitive past tense usage. I saw it. And then you added the parenthetical. <laughs> I did. Look, right, look, I don't care. Very adroitly, it's fine. I might add. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> but I want you to know that I, I totally caught it. Very nimbly. Yes. It was an athletic move. No, no, no. All right. And once again, maybe in the future, I'll be interesting. But today, you're the interesting one. And so let's, let's talk about that match. So it was the U.S. Open. It was the final. And it was Serena Williams, who's won many times in many different venues. And she's playing the relatively unknown uh, Naomi Osaka. And before we get to what happened in the match... I want to talk about the writing of this piece that you put together. What made you write that piece so immediately and so quickly? Were you hot about it or you just thought it was interesting? First of all, I thought it was was unique and unprecedented in my personal experience to see a Grand Slam final end the way that it did. So that's news. And, And I called the office immediately and said, you know, I think I have to write, don't you? And they were like, well, we'd love it if you would. So I started typing. It took about 90 minutes probably. So let's set the stage. So Serena Williams is in the final with Naomi Osaka. Serena Williams gets beaten pretty badly in the first set, right? Six, she's down 6-2, and now it's the second set. And there were a series of calls made by the chair ump, Carlos Ramos, three in particular that resulted in a, a fairly harsh penalty against Serena. Tell us what those were. So it begins when he calls her for coaching, which is a pretty ticky-tacky technical call to make. Coaching is a a subject in tennis that has been debated for a long, long time. It's something that is called disproportionately against women, actually. Uh, Men don't get called for it nearly as much. Uh, What's the the violation? So the rules are fairly incoherent, actually. In women's tennis, uh, you can can be coached at certain stages of the match, but not at others. The rules are different in men's tennis. In a Grand Slam final, the rule is basically no coaching in a Grand Slam final. But it's a scrambled egg policy, basically, to start with. Her coach did try to signal something from the box, 
she claims, first of all, that they don't have preset signals, and therefore, even had she seen what he was doing, she would not have understood what he meant by it. But, te- but, it's, but it is technically true because he admitted true, yeah. it. Yes. He said he was engaging in coaching. Correct. So and, the first violation is coaching. Um, but what do you make about that? And, and part of the reason I'm asking this question is, you know, we spent a lot of time on the show and I have in my life yeah. talking about what's fair in the courtroom, what's fair in politics, and whether rules should be followed, and what the discretion is of the person who's going to bring about the penalty— so it's a rule. It is a rule. It was admitted that the rule was broken. Correct. And we'll get in a moment to whether or not it was selectively enforced. Correct. But any unfairness in calling that infraction? So discretion is the key word here. The chair empire has a lot of latitude. He, for instance, could have warned her. He could have leaned down from the chair and said, hey, your guy's trying to signal you. Tell him to knock it off. Right? I mean, that's one option that <clears throat> he had. He's a known stickler, he called it. I saw Alan Dershowitz mm-hmm. on television talking about this. One of those rare occasions he wasn't defending the legal strategy of Donald Trump. And he said, and I know it kind of sat with me a little bit, that the unfairness of the calling of coaching mm-hmm. was similar in the law if you imposed a penalty on a client for an infraction by the lawyer. Correct. And, and, what, and it was the coach who was engaging in the bad conduct. And a harm should not have been visited on the player. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And Billie Jean King said that very thing. It's part of the problem with the way the rule is written is that the player absorbs the penalty for something that the coach is doing. That Serena Williams in the middle of a Grand Slam final has no control over the people in her box, right? Okay, so and the so, first thing happens. Yes. Okay, then the second thing happens. What's that? So the second thing happens, and he has to call this, she breaks her racket. Cut and dried. No real discretion there, although... You know, some again, chair umpires have an enormous amount of latitude. There are some chair umpires who might have issued a warning rather than what they call a code conduct violation. So she breaks her racket. That's two strikes, essentially. What we're working up to is a third strike. Right. And the significance of the third strike is? The significance of the third strike is that it's a mandatory deduction of a full game. So when she breaks her racket, it's the second violation. He deducts a point. Because he's already called her for coaching, it's a second strike against her, and therefore it deducts a point. And so now she's had a point taken from her in a critical game, in a critical stage of the match. Now, Serena Williams has come back. She's a notorious slow starter. She's come back from a set down in more Grand Slam finals than we could probably count on four hands. This is part of what she does. She fuels herself competitively with a certain amount of competitive anger. And so now what he's done is he's walked her up to the edge of a cliff. And it's the third call yeah, although, that although, I have Arguably, Serena walked herself up she a little bit because she broke the racket herself, yes. and her coach did the thing, right? Correct. You know, I don't condone her conduct uh, across the board, and I don't think anybody does, and I don't think she defends her conduct across the board. It's the third call that Carlos Ramos makes that is really where he had the most latitude and the most discretion, and he makes the strangest call of the match. And it happens to be the one call that, in my mind, an umpire or an official or a sentencing judge or a prosecutor really doesn't make. This is what takes the entire match situation from a normal skirmish between athlete and chair umpire or athlete and referee and tips it over into the truly unprecedented, ugliest situation I've ever seen in a Grand Slam tournament. And I've covered a number of them. Which is what? So Serena Williams does what? Serena Williams is arguing with him. There's no audible obscenity, which is a rule. There is no threat. Back in 2009, she threatens a lineswoman and says, I should shove this ball down your throat. I wrote it in 2009. She should have been suspended for that. 
So you think that merely calling, because I think she called him a thief. Right. She said, you stole a point from me. Stole a point, and I think called him a thief. Yeah. You're a thief. You stole a point from me. But there was no profanity. There's no profanity. And there was no no suggestion of having them swallow a piece of sports equipment. Exactly. She's arguing in a a fairly controlled, uh, for at least from my point of view, watching at home with the rest of the TV audience, where you could hear every word. The people in the arena couldn't hear actually what was going down on the court. But at home watching on television, you actually could hear every word she was saying. Right. And what, what's your demeanor during this time? Because, and we'll talk about this because I think uh, it's interesting whether angry, there's a double standard. Yeah. Angry. Between men and women. Mm-hmm. Argumentative. Strident. Would you use the word emotional? Certainly. But you also, I think, use the word controlled. Controlled. And that yes. makes a difference. Yes. I mean, she was very careful, for instance, not to use foul language and not to use threatening language. You know, she'd been in this situation before in 2009 when she was a younger player with a lot less self-command. She had behaved really brutally in a brutally ugly fashion and I think has worked pretty hard to get a grip on that sort of behavior on the court. But again, technically, he was within his rights to call it. I don't think he was within his right to call her. What he calls her for, he calls her for verbal abuse. Which, first of all, is an incredibly vague term anyway. You know, but it's I, in the rule. It's, there is a rule against verbal abuse. Right. It seems to me there's what a lot of problems with these rules. Yeah. It's a, we're talking about in a pretty archaic rule book anyway. Verbal abuse. I mean, I didn't hear anything abusive in what she was saying. I mean, I just didn't. I, to this, I don't but it's think— it's supposed to be an objective standard of abuse. Like if he felt abused— like Part of what you wrote is that the chairump decided to make it about himself. And I, look, I've seen that in yes. courtrooms too where a defense lawyer— is making an argument, and for some reason, the judge thinks, you know, many judges would not find it offensive. A particular judge is maybe sensitive about it, finds it offensive, and begins to rule against one side, which I think is unfair, but it is within the discretion of that judge. So was it incumbent on the judge, in this case the chair ump, to control himself, or knowing the stakes and being the professional athlete, maybe the best in the sport that we've ever seen, up to her to control herself? I think nobody likes it when a judge of any sort inserts themselves into a situation where things appear to be working themselves out. No member of the audience and no competitor wants the final score to be determined by the guy in the striped shirt or the person in the blazer sitting in a chair 10 feet above the action on the court. Or like the Supreme Court with a presidential election. (laughs) <laughs> or a, a, a judge in a Paul Manafort's trial, okay? Right. People were a little uncomfortable with the way the Virginia judge kept inserting himself, right? Right, right. So, that's, a great, that's a great analogy, right? You know, and, so it, it, when you feel that someone is tilting the floor, particularly when a judge is tilting the floor, that chair umpire tilted the court, okay? So it's difficult now to know whether Naomi Osaka was going to beat Serena Williams in two straight sets and win the U.S. Open Championship because this judge dropped a game and a point on her side of the court. This is one of the great philosophical debates in sports. You know, do you call the foul in the final second of the NCAA championship game or the NBA final? Do you call holding uh, uh, on the last play of the Super Bowl or, or interference? Do you let them play and potentially commit physical violations out there? Or if it's, do you if step it's on, in? If it's on the fence, in the case of a clear and serious violation in any sport or in, in the real world, outside of sports, you call it. What you're saying is, I think, there's more of a debate about whether or not in a, in a close situation, 
do you become the deciding factor? Right. Do you become the deciding factor? And and so a lot of times audiences get very frustrated or sports writers or, you know, whomever, particularly competitors, get very frustrated when a ref or a chair umpire calls something that could be called it at any stage of the game. It, it, again, you, you go back to common violations that early in the game are not decisive factors, but in the final 30 seconds, obviously, create an unequal situation. Right. Like Jim Comey sending the letter... <laughs> yeah. Nine days before. So, I mean, We're going to exhaust, se- by the way, so all the parallels between Serena Williams and, sentencing. and everything else yeah. that's going on in the so, world. So here's what, here's what it looked like to me. So what happens when Carlos Ramos calls that third code conduct violation and slaps an entire game penalty on her, basically six, the third strike on her, you know, says three strikes, you're out, basically game, set, match over. I'm taking the entire U.S. Open away from you. So what that looks like to me and a bunch of other people is, you know, you get pulled over for speeding and you wind up in handcuffs in a jail cell. Okay. okay. It feels like an incredibly disproportionate sentence in but, comparison but partly, to the offense. But is it so just to push back a little bit and, and yeah. figure out what the principles are here? Serena was down. She lost the first set. And I know you say that she's one of the greatest comeback players of all time. But she was only down a further game. In other words, is it was the breaking point for her? She could have come back and won the entire match if it had remained 3-2, I think it was. Or because this one additional game was taken away from her, then it was game over. Or is it a, is it a combination of that and what this did to her mental state? So I think it was the combination. I, I think it was the three code conduct violations in a row, which were incredibly disruptive, I think, to both players and the audience. But also, again, it's the stage of the match. It was a combination. It was the confluence of about three or four right. different factors that I think were so upsetting to the audience, to her, to Osaka. Right. You mentioned the audience a few times. Mm-hmm. And should an umpire in this situation step back a little bit and let the players play because it's entertainment only? Or does it does it need to be as principled and rule-oriented as any other thing we engage in? Well, I think that's a great question. And I, I, I think the answer is the former. I, I think that understanding context, situational awareness is really critical for umpires and referees. And I think the really good ones in the game understand exactly who they are and where they are. And part of my issue with the way Carlos Ramos umpired that match was that he had no situational awareness, uh, absolutely no sense of time and context. And, you know, really, uh, there was a significant cost to both players, even though it is sport. You know, athletes are incredibly ephemeral creatures. They only get a few cracks at all-time greatness, at U.S. Open finals. So there was a a real sense that he had deprived both players of something quite important, even though it is just a, a tennis match. You know, there was $3.5 million at stake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's a certain amount of, you want a certain certain amount of justice there. More importantly, you know, for Naomi Osaka, it was her debut as a Grand Slam champion, and it's really kind of forever marred. What level of blame do you put on Serena Williams? Oh, plenty. But again, you know, it's the disproportion that is distressing in the situation. Then what did you make? So then the, the, the game is awarded to Osaka. And Serena gets, now she gets very upset. Describe what she did. She calls for the tournament supervisor, which she had every right to do. The tournament supervisor can overturn the decision of the chair umpire. In this case, they didn't. So you think the the chair abused his authority? I I think he overstepped, and I think he, he overreached, and I think he wasn't going to be spoken to that way. 
And uh, I think he let his emotions get the better of him. And, and, you know, look, your job in that situation is to warn her, which is what most chair umpires would have done. They would have said, careful, you've got two code conduct violations. Don't make me give you a third one because then I'll have to take a game away from you. Was it that he didn't like being talked to in a certain way by a woman, by a black woman, and that he was being in some ways misogynist in his umpiring? You know, I don't know about the misogyny, but I do think that the evidence is absolutely clear that male players behave that way all the time without those kinds of penalties. And I'll give you an example. And I've seen umpteen matches where male players broke rackets, swore in one instance of probably the worst instance I ever covered. And I really like Andre Agassi and he's grown into just a wonderful man and he, he outgrew this incident. But he was playing a match against Peter Corda at the U.S. Open, and he uh, FU'd the umpire, called him an SOB, and then spit at him on the changeover and played on without right. penalty. No penalty. In fact, the chair umpire tried to penalize him. Agassi called for the tournament supervisor. The tournament supervisor came out and overturned the chair umpire and basically let Agassi play on in the match. He was the but, biggest but star you, in the men's game. But you know what? Um Everyone does it. It's not an honorable defense. Certainly not. And there's a little bit of you know what people refer to as whataboutism. Of, so you're which caught I loathe. And I loathe right, whataboutism. And, yeah. um, yeah. Isn't this a little bit of that? No. Here's why. Because if you look statistically at the number of times any player, male or female, has been penalized an entire game. You mean that huge penalty? That huge penalty that Serena Williams got. Yeah. Once in 3,500 matches. One other time in 3,500 tennis matches. You can't find stati- – people to have tried to analyze statistically whether women get penalized like this more than men. The fact is nobody gets penalized the way she did. Nobody. So, you know, what that suggests to me is there was a clear bias on the part of this chair umpire. It was an unprecedented penalty. Do you think this chair ump should continue to be in the game? You know, I, I do. I, I don't think you throw you've been, this guy you've been out of the harsh. game. No, I'm saying I think he did a, committed a real disservice, and I think he let his bias get the best of him on the court. Now, what sort of bias it is, it could have been purely personal. I happen to think it was it was biased uh, towards women uh, behaving that way on a court because he's presided over other matches where he didn't penalize Rafa Nadal for a full game, and Rafa Nadal came after him verbally said you'll never, Rafa Nadal told him at the French Open, you'll never sit in the chair in another one of my matches, which is almost verbatim one of the things Serena Williams said to him in the U.S. Open final. So then the match ends, and it's chaos, and everyone's upset. So then they come out for the ceremony. Why don't you describe the scene? Well, essentially, you've got both players distraught and in tears. Uh, The the crowd is is living. The loser and the winner. The loser and the winner are both crying. The crowd is booing. The boos are raining down on the court. Right, and Osaka is waiting for her chance to speak because first Serena speaks and and Naomi has her uh, her visor, right. which she pushes down and she's wiping tears away, even though she has just done when the most open. extraordinary thing of her entire life, of her entire career, maybe the most extraordinary thing she will ever do, and the moment's ruined for her. The, the moment is ruined for her because of the intensity, the intensity of the, the anger and the emotion in the arena from the crowd. You know, no one wanted to see it end that way. Look, that moment is so complex and so loaded because Osaka is sick because she didn't want to win a match that way. She didn't want anything given to her. She wanted to beat Serena Williams in the U.S. Open final. 
Serena Williams is sick at what's been taken away from her, but I think also probably, uh, I presume, fairly sickened that she's helped ruin this moment for this great new young player. The crowd is sick for both players and furious at the chair umpire for having created the situation in the first place. I mean, tennis is a fairly undemonstrative, uh, is a very hushed sport. So that level of noise and emotion was, was pretty extraordinary. But then what happens? Well, and Serena Williams puts her arm around uh, Naomi Osaka and leans over and says, I'm very proud of you. They're not booing you. And then she also tells the crowd, no more booing. This is her moment. You know, let's make this the best moment we can for her. And no official and no announcer was going to get a grip on that crowd. Serena Williams at that moment is the only person who can do it. And she knows that. And I think took responsibility for herself in that moment and did exactly the right thing. My last question to you on this match. What was the angry reaction to your article? The people who were upset with your view, what was... Because it really, it hits a nerve. You know, I think the match itself hit a nerve. People respond in in intensely emotional ways to sporting events. They're trigger events, uh, sports events, because people, when you root for somebody, part of what you're rooting for is you want to be right. Okay, you don't want to be wrong about them. So the stakes get a little high uh, rooting for for sports figures or sports teams. There have been a million psychological studies that show that people take the successes and failures of their sports teams or sports figures as very personal successes and failures. It's about your judgment, right? But the second part of it is, you know, Serena Williams provokes real discussion. She has set out actively, sought the platform to provoke discussion about gender and race. And it makes people uncomfortable, it makes them defensive, and it makes them resentful sometimes. Is it appropriate for her to do that? Or is it up to each individual person? It's up to each individual person. It's not inappropriate. You know, Billie Jean King chose to do it. Arthur Ashe chose to do it. LeBron James has made a whole different range of social activist choices than Michael Jordan did. You know, some athletes do and some athletes don't. And it's not incumbent. You know, I asked Billie Jean King that question once. I said, are athletes supposed to be activists? Do they have a responsibility? And she said, no, it's a choice. She said, I wanted it. I wanted to be that. But I, I would never impose that on an athlete who didn't feel comfortable with it. So That's a great segue mm-hmm. to talk about football. Yes. And kneeling during the anthem mm-hmm. and Colin Kaepernick. And you've written about this. And a preliminary question, which you address, is why does it make people so crazy? The issue of somebody protesting in a particular way and you have said, with respect, I think, to the, to the Colin Kaepernick controversy and his decision to protest not the anthem, not the flag, but police brutality and inequality in various sectors of the, of the country. And you have said that in part, it's because people view that as a denial of American exceptionalism. Of American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting because the NFL on Sundays has become a form of civil religion. Uh, you can find a whole lot more people in this country at football games on Sunday than in church. Right. And the NFL has quite actively sought to wrap themselves in the flag. And also there's a certain amount of wrapping themselves in, in a, a religious-like fervor. And But is that based on adherence to religion or is that about money? Well, it's both. I mean, it's it's not pure artifice, but they did set out to wrap themselves in the flag during the 1960s. Pete Rosell even said, you know, they, they basically were going to turn themselves into, you know, this sort of patriotic institution in the middle of the Vietnam War. What was really pretty 
craven about the whole thing was that NFL owners were protecting their players and their financial investments in their players by helping them stay out of the draft. They were funneling them into uh, National Guard units, local National Guard units. If you went to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and you're a young man trying to get into your National Guard unit as opposed to getting shipped out to Vietnam, you couldn't get in because it was full of Green Bay Packers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing in Dallas. Right. Okay. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys filled up all the National Guard units. So, uh, in fact, it became a bit of a scandal. Life magazine did an expose on it. The NFL has had this coming for quite a long time. Why Why the NFL as opposed to Major League Baseball or the NBA? Was it just a, was it just a particular decision they've been that could have been made by any sport? They've in- been more aggressive in marketing themselves that way. You know, football is a, a war without death game. Uh, look, not the, always without death. Early, early, not always without death. In fact, uh, particularly in the Victorian era. So, I mean, I've written an entire book about this subject called "The Real All Americans." The birth of American football follows closely on the closing of the frontier and the end of the the uh, Indian Wars. I mean, basically, college football is essentially founded about six months after Little Bighorn. The frontier is closed. The transcontinental. Railroad is finished, and there's really nothing else left to conquer. The wilderness is conquered, right? And there's this fear in Victorian America that American men are becoming feminized and over-civilized. There was a fear, and we have it today, by the way. Uh, it governs a lot of how we look at philosophically at sports. There is this um, neuroses, American neuroses, this fear that the human body is being outstripped by our technology, and when that happens, we get a little funny about our sports in this country. So this controversy about the kneeling during the anthem, what's interesting about that in part is I feel like a lot of people assume that it's always been that way, that the players come on the field during the anthem. Players only started coming out on the field during the national anthem in... 2009, I 2009. think it was. 2009. Yeah. So not uh, before, even 10 years ago. So. so there was a moment in the 60s where Pete Rozelle, uh, I think for one of the Super Bowls, basically sent a memo that said, you know, I want everybody standing on the sidelines with their helmet under their arm, standing at attention. But that's fairly brief. As soon as every game becomes televised... Uh, they didn't want the audience watching the national anthem before NFL games. They wanted them watching commercials. I mean, the anthem wasn't even televised particularly. It's only when the NFL makes a deal with the Pentagon to start using the NFL as a marketing vehicle for the U.S. military that you start getting the anthemizing of the NFL. Do we do too much of that at baseball games too? I asked Rocky Blyer. Rocky Blyer was a great Super Bowl champion for the Pittsburgh Steelers who had actually used one of the few NFL players who did not get out of the draft, the Vietnam draft. He ended up going to Vietnam as an infantryman, got uh, shot and blown up, had shrapnel in in his legs, uh, almost didn't come back and play football, worked his way back and wins a couple of Super Bowls with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I asked him not too long ago, I was doing an interview with him, and I said, you know, why do you think people uh, feel so strongly about this whole anthem thing in stadiums anyway. And he said, I don't know, guilt, right? Right. If you talk to uh, servicemen, if you talk to football players who've served, those guys, like a, a Rocky Blyer, is a little uncomfortable with the fact that if you look in any football stadium on Sunday, maybe 1% of the people in that stadium have any relation to the armed services. Maybe. I mean, that's what it is in this country today, right? Uh, the, yeah. pe- the people who serve are comprised about, they come from about 1% of our population, as opposed to, to Vietnam when during the draft, I mean, it was significantly higher. 
uh, American families had personal relationships to servicemen during the Vietnam era, and we don't anymore, and that's a fact. And so that's a weird neuroses to me. You know, what is this thing that we are doing as an audience that we are so captivated by this issue with the flag and service? If you look at NFL players, I've studied the NFL player population for their relationship. The league is loaded with guys whose parents served, uh, who have brothers or sisters serving, some of them married women who've served. I mean, they actually probably have a stronger relationship to the military personally. Than the average person. Certainly than you or me. Yeah, right. You know. You use this other phrase to describe what's going on and the pressure to behave in a certain way and not behave in a certain way as enforced patriotism. Is that what you think it is? Involuntary patriotism is not patriotism. It's North Korea, you know. It's, that's, that's simple, right? Involuntary patriotism is it's, it's a contradiction in terms. And do you think it's um, heightened because the president gets involved? Certainly, of course. You look, presidents have gotten involved with football uh, since Teddy Roosevelt. Sure. You know, Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson's wife at one point said it's a good thing that, you know, Princeton won the football game because I don't think Woodrow could have taken, you know, losing a football game and an election. Right. right? <laughs> but it's interesting to me how much of this, like just beneath the surface, just beneath the surface is about economics. Yes. And about profit. And now we have the issue of Nike. So this whole time people thought Colin Kaepernick, you know, was sacrificing a lot, and I think he has. And then there was a controversy because Nike has this new ad campaign. And a lot of people began burning Nike shoes uh, and saying they were going to boycott. And then it turns out sales spiked by 31%. Yeah. So is this about business or is this about patriotism? Well, they're they're intertwined when it comes to... That's the American way. Yeah, that's the American way. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's funny because... You know, as I've always I've always thought that Colin Kaepernick's message was incredibly muddled. You know, I applaud him for social activism. I applaud him for giving a lot of money to causes he believes in that, you know, part of this to me stemmed from an imprecision of language. You know, the NFL players who are still uh, wanting to kneel on the sidelines, they get infuriated when they say it's not about patriotism. It's not about the anthem. And you're like, well, then why are you doing it during the anthem? I mean, you, the problem here is... But, but he's not protesting the flag. That's what people get very upset about when they hear the description of this as protesting the flag. How do you resolve that linguistic issue? To me, the players' movement, again, which I applaud and which I defend, but as a, as a language person... I think that they they muddled the message initially. I knew what Tommy Smith and John Carlos wanted from the 1968 Olympics. I knew what Muhammad Ali wanted. And when you refer to them, you're talking about people who won medals. Raised black glove fists on the medal, gave up their medals, actually ended up surrendering their medals. They had a very clear written agenda, a set of social justice issues that they had very clearly stated, had very clearly thought out. Muhammad Ali, again, had a very clear set of beliefs and, a, and an agenda. Billie Jean King always knew exactly what she was fighting for. I feel like Colin Kaepernick, I personally feel like he has lacked the sort of diamond cutter's clarity that some of those other activists had in terms of reaching people. Well, can that be fixed? Sure. Or is it too late? I think it could be fixed. The message but, can be fixed? Yeah, but, you know, when's the last time you heard Colin Kaepernick talk? Yeah, a long time. I mean, it's been, what, a couple years? Yeah, he might sound like Jared Kushner. I have no idea. That's the thing. I haven't heard Colin Kaepernick. I really haven't. I, think I haven't Nike, heard his... think Nike told him not to talk. That's an interesting point. Like, I'm why, not why sure. Not? I, I really don't know because no one can reach. I mean, 
it's not a criticism. It's more of, I'm expressing a certain curiosity about his method. There's a murkiness here that um, is interesting to me. So how does a how does this get diffused or resolved, or is it going to be a continuing issue so long as some people think there's something that's wrong in society and worth protesting? We're going to have these two camps that are very polarized into the future. Well, so Colin Kaepernick has a collusion case against the NFL, so we'll we'll have a legal resolution True. to whether or not he was in fact blacklisted or blackballed from the league. That will be in a critical outcome and, and turning point. You know, at some point, I do think that Kaepernick is going to have to be something more than a cipher that people are uh, projecting onto. He lacks the hard edges uh, that other great athlete activists have had to me. Okay, I get so, that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that football will exist in its current form, given documented cases of concussions and, and other deterioration of people physically after playing the game for a while. Do you think that football will exist in anything like its current form in 50 years? I do, because I think the American public has decided in 800 different ways that it wants it, uh, whether it's giving huge tax breaks to billionaire owners and devoting huge amounts of city budgets to their stadiums. So we're not going to get rid of it. You, you actually no, called it once. I actually think what's going to happen is they're going to have to do, because I do think that injury and particularly the concussion and neurological issue in football is uh, the black lung. They have a black lung problem. Yeah. And so I think what's going to happen is what happened to the coal industry in this country, where they're going to have to establish a fund, uh, a large ongoing fund. And the price of doing business as an NFL owner is going to be to contribute to the lifelong medical care of your employees. But it will. But football will continue because you put it, I could just quote you back to yourself over and over again. I think you once wrote, football has become the liturgy of empire. Yes. That sounds very grand. Well, it's true. I don't think those were my words. I think I was quoting Oh, yes, you were quoting writer. someone. <laughs> it sounds like you. You could have written that. It's a great phrase. I, I mean, I've quoted it because I, I believe it. You know, look, football is about taking, it's about moving other bodies out of the way to take territory, right? Right. (laughs) It's very American, too. It is. What about boxing? Will boxing exist? I mean, boxing doesn't exist in some way. Boxing's already been, it exists, but on a much smaller scale than it did when I was a kid. The NFL has a, a staying power. Again, I don't think you can underestimate the degree to which politicians want it. The NFL commits all sorts of transgressions, and, and they get let, let off the hook in a lot of ways by law enforcement, by regulatory agencies, by city governments, by the federal government. It's, it's very interesting. We support that league in ways that we don't support any other American business. Yeah, that's And fair. so I do think it's going to stick around. But as I say, it's a workplace hazard. You know, it's a 100% injury rate in that league. Yeah. So you had a professional relationship with another uh, legendary athlete named Lance Armstrong. My friend Lance Armstrong. Your friend Lance Armstrong. You wrote two books with him. Yes. He didn't write any of the words, right? You wrote them all? I wouldn't say that. That's not how that works. <laughs> all right. Like at 80, I wrote the 20, good ones. you wrote the good ones. <laughs> did he say that football has become the liturgy of empire? I don't think that he was He did it. not say that. Okay. No. And I don't want to relitigate his doping and everything else, but you, know, you, you once wrote after you uh, came to understand and believe that he'd engaged in this conduct and had doped, to use the mm-hmm. parlance. Which is a bad term, by the way. It is, but I'm going to use that term for now because I don't want to get into a debate about they what it means. use the word dirty, too. About what dirty it means. athletes, right? I, I, but he did a thing that got him in trouble. Mm-hmm. And then you wrote a piece saying, you know, you're trying to find your anger towards Lance Armstrong and you can't find it. I've never found my indignation against 
Barry Bonds or Marion Jones or I mean I just don't have it. I mean if I'm amoral, then I'm amoral on that subject. But um, I don't have it. I've never had it. Long before I met Lance, I didn't have it against Marion Jones. But is it because of the, the nature of that transgression, or because you know you don't put them on a pedestal and you look at them for what they have done, either in fighting against cancer or in achieving something in sports that no one has ever achieved before. And so if they had this other thing that they were doing, that doesn't bother you no, so much. No, what, what doesn't bother me about it is that I feel like we have, as a society, done a profoundly bad job of working through the philosophy of medicine, doping, performance enhancement. We have, again, as a language person, we've done an incredibly poor job of defining what performance enhancement is, why it's wrong. There was a study in 2016 from some Dutch scientists who uh, gave EPO to some cyclists riding up Mount Ventoux, which is a stage in the Tour de France. They took a bunch of highly trained cyclists and they gave half of them EPO and they gave half of them a placebo. And the riders on the EPO rode actually slower. We actually don't know. There's very, the science is shoddy. EPO is? EPO is erythropoietin, which is a medicine that they give cancer patients to help build their red blood cells back. Athletes have used it to build red blood cells in competition. Right. You know, so we, 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 first of all, we've done a really poor job of defining these substances. And the easiest thing for everyone to do is demonize. Well, but let me ask you this. And because I come from, you know, a law and order background and there are rules. Mm -hmm. And with respect to some things, you can say, well, the rules are not clear and there's no intentionality. Mm -hmm. But are, are you saying, or maybe you're not saying this, that with respect to all the people you mentioned, like Barry Bonds, Lance Armstrong, Marion Jones, with respect to any of them, did they know there was a rule? Sure. And did they knowingly violate the Certainly, rule? Certainly, of so, course. So, so why can't we be upset with them for that? We can. Okay, but did yeah. you or not? I mean, I, I think we can be upset with them, upset with them to the level of making them pariahs of society, okay, so th- taking now, now away about... millions of dollars and sicking the federal government on them. So now we're talking about quality of punishment. Again, proportionality. Right. What I'm saying is that I don't have the heart to judge an athlete who has one skill and one skill only is an incredibly ephemeral creature and is using something to recover from an injury or to get back on the bike to ride up another alp on another day in a three-week bike race through terrain that car transmissions have a hard time getting up. It's just never made sense to me personally to sort of judge those people as, uh, you know, um, the worst members of our society. Right. I mean, it just doesn't add well, up to me. Well, you know, it's part of the problem. That we put these people on pedestals. Yes. And so we get incredibly disappointed. We do it with yes. politicians sometimes too. And we view them we, as heroes. We demand a purity from them that we do not demand from any other member of our art, of our science, or, of the, White our, House. or the White House. But I'll give you another example. Why is it that the founders of Snapchat can go to Stanford, make millions and millions of dollars exploring uh, entrepreneurial opportunities, but NCAA basketball players, if they take a free pair of sneakers or a meal, they're called criminals? Why is that? In the law, we spend a lot of time revising laws, understanding that our standards change from era to era in some ways. I am concerned with the degree to which we make athletes live in other epochs while we all move on. (laughs) So in other words, an NCAA player, the terms of his scholarship are exactly the same as they were in 1960. Meanwhile, NCAA revenue TV revenue alone has gone from $550 million a year to a billion. It's almost becoming an equal justice under the law situation in the NCAA because we're really creating a separate class of citizens. Last thing, Mm -hmm. 
because your your career spans all sorts of amazing interviews, and I, I hope and presume that you will eventually get Kaepernick to talk to you. But you were, I believe, the last person, last journalist to interview Joe Paterno, mm-hmm. who was the head coach, uh, head football coach at Penn State. And, you know, opinions vary about him uh, and what he did or did not know. My opinions vary about him. Yeah. You know? But I don't want, you know, we don't have time mm-hmm. to go through that horrible series of events and the abuse that took place at Penn State. The question is, though, how did it feel to interview him when he was basically uh, on his last breath? He was dying of cancer. He was not well. And to just describe what that was like, given the complexity of that person. Well, it was it was profoundly difficult and heartrending because, you know, he was surrounded by his family. He was also flanked by lawyers. It was in some ways awkward. Why do you think he agreed to do it? Because I think he was fighting for his legacy, his posthumous legacy, and I think he felt that he had a chance with me to get some nuances and some subtleties across, which I think were legitimate explanations of his behavior. You know, I, I think he had a, a, some mixed motives. You know, I think um, I think he was justifying him some things to himself too. I mean, it was part of his was calculated strategy, uh, and part of it I think was uh, he was talking to himself as much as to me. Do you worry about that? Do you have to be worried about people who are trying to burnish their legacy and engage in sure. um, yeah. self-aggrandizing publicity Legendizing, self-legendizing. Yeah. I tried to do that, and you did the whole start shirt thing <laughs> with me. So I clearly well, sucked at that. You know, my dad is a sports writer, so I grew up at the knee, and he's, he's a great sports writer yes. and uh, of a certain type. And he spent a lot of time uh, bursting the pretensions of a lot of the people that he covered. He's he, my Dan Jenkins was known as a really has always been known as a very truthful sports writer who quoted athletes talking the way they really talk, saying the things they really say, and not writing children's literature, which is what a lot of sports writing can devolve into if you're not really careful. You know, fables, right? And. Right, right. Um, I like I like talking. People to, like fables. I lo- you know what you know what I really love talking to athletes most is when they're older and right on the cusp of retirement because they want to be understood. Athletes who have spent years in in basic silence, holding the media at bay, uh, they hit like thirty eight, thirty nine, forty years old, and they start wanting to kind of talk to somebody and they want someone to understand the sacrifice or the inner driver that pushed them to do these extraordinary things. That's when they're at their most interesting. The easiest mark in the world for for someone really a good interviewer is a great legendary athlete turning 40. <laughs> <laughs> Final question then. Who is the athlete who is still playing today in any sport that you would like to interview when they're on the cusp of retirement? What's fun is to find someone who hasn't been fully cracked open yet. Someone who's been very reserved for a long, long time and then to try to get them to tell you a little bit about what they do. Would, would Tiger Woods be interesting in the way you've described to interview if he was going to be forthcoming on the cusp of retirement? Sure. Anytime someone lifts the lid on the Ferrari, you know, you, you really want to stare down into the engine and say, okay, well, how did that work? You know, what really drove you? Uh, you know, Serena Williams, I, I've Serena did an autobiography back in 2009, but she was just becoming a great player in 2009 and now she's an important player and that's a that's a big difference and so i would be really interested in talking to her over the next couple of years as she winds down do you think every great player it's an interesting distinction do you think every great player longs to be an important player yes 
Absolutely. And some what, of them that, are what does more, that mean? So some of them are more suited for it than others. Chris Everett was a great player, became an important player in a very, very subtle way through the sheer unbroken grace of her conduct and the, her sort of ethic on the court became translated into a, a larger ethic. Um, I think people found her an incredibly ethical champion. I mean, she gave back a point once in a Grand Slam final uh, when the chair umpire missed the call. She didn't want it. She gave it back to the opponent. She said, no, the, the ball was out. That sort of thing. Whereas Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova were important, politically important. You know, Chris Everett wasn't political, but she was important in other ways. So they, you know, but they all long for importance. They long to believe that what they're doing matters and is meaningful for something more than, than ego. They're just like everyone else. Yes. And it is important, just sometimes not in the ways that they think. On that note, I can say you have already achieved importance. So you're good. Not just greatness, but importance. Thank you. Sally Jenkins, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. So as I said at the top of the show, today is a very special day for me. It's a special anniversary. It's the one year to the day anniversary of my starting this podcast. And so, you know, after I got fired as being U.S. attorney, I wasn't sure what I would do next. I wanted to write this book, and I wanted to continue having a voice on issues that I care about, communicate with the public, try my hand at something completely new. And my brother gave me the opportunity to do it through his company. And, you know, we gave it a shot. And a year ago to the day, I walked into an office with Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense and CIA Director, to see if we could have a conversation that anybody would want to listen to. And a year later, I can say thank you to all of you for tuning in, for staying tuned, for paying attention. It's been an amazing 12 months. The podcast to me is not about educating other folks alone and explaining what's going on in the world. It's also for me to understand and learn and grow and educate myself. The two things about this that have been the most gratifying have been, one, the opportunity to meet and talk to at some length the most thoughtful, interesting, caring, intelligent people that you can find in basically any field, have them come on the show to talk about what's going on in America. Because I think there's been no time as critical as now to trying to make sense of what's going on. And the, the best moments that I've had on the podcast have been when I have learned along with you. And there are a lot of times when I'm asking a guest a question that I haven't thought of in advance. I just listen to what they're saying. And, and hopefully, I'm asking the question that popped into your head when someone is talking about Mueller or someone is talking about criminal justice or someone is talking about how we deal with foreign policy or Russian intervention in the election. And so it has been you know, an honor and a pleasure for me to learn along with you. So from time to time, I read the reviews that we get. And sometimes people don't like some things on the show. More often, I'm gratified to say people do like what they hear on the show. I'm going to single out one. So on Twitter, not too long ago, somebody, somebody put out a request and said, you know, who on here has helped you the most in processing Trumpism and dealing with friends, family who support it? I'm thinking in terms of emotional well-being. And then a person who I think I've answered a question from before, Cliff Graham. Hey, Cliff, whose handle on Twitter is fishnerd, N-U-R-D, responded as follows. He writes, probably Preet Bharara, for his super soothing delivery of informed righteous indignation. <laughs> and then he writes, sounds contradictory, but it's a very real thing. And we all here, you should know, the team that works on Stay Tuned, 
laughed at that and appreciated it and realized we couldn't have put it any better ourselves. So we aspire to that. I aspire to have a super soothing delivery. I aspire to be informed. And there are occasions when I feel righteous indignation. And that's maybe when the show is at its most compelling. The other thing I want to say is a thank you, not just to the listeners who make this possible, but to the team. You know, at the end of the show every week, I read off a list of names in the credits, and you don't know who they are, and you don't know how special they are. But there are a lot of people who make this work. There are a lot of people who help me sort of develop my voice, people who help me get the guests, people who help me sort through my thoughts over the week, people who are good at picking out the questions that I should answer. And so, um, you know, when you hear the names at the end, make sure that you appreciate that none of this would be possible, and we would not be doing as well if I didn't have the amazing team both at Cafe and at Pineapple Street Media. You know, one of the folks, the genius behind Pineapple Street Media, is Max Linsky, who comes often, is sitting here right now in the studio, has no idea what I'm about to say, who has often said to me, reminded me on those moments that we're sort of behind schedule, and I'm not sure exactly what our, who our guest is going to be and what we're going to talk about. And Max, who is wise beyond his years, reminds me of something that I used to tell folks in my own office, but you sometimes forget. Make sure you're having fun. And some of the greatest moments that I hope to repeat going forward are not just in the studio, but during the live show. And uh, one of my fondest memories, because it's one of Max's fondest memories, is sitting backstage at the Apollo Theater before we were coming out with Bassam Yusuf, and we had collected a bunch of questions from the audience that I was going to answer live and in the moment and trying to think of what jokes I might tell and how I might respond. And I'm sitting backstage at the world-famous Apollo Theater with a bunch of friends. There may or may not have been a beer involved. Thinking about jokes and thinking about how to answer your questions. And so I feel incredibly fortunate in life to be able to do something that's fun, informative, and that I get to learn from as well. So thank you for all of that. But... That's not the only anniversary that I'm proud of and gratified to mention. Last week marked the 18-month anniversary of my being fired from my office. And I don't say that to belabor the fact that I was fired, but to mention it also was the occasion last week of my hosting, along with June Kim, my successor as U.S. attorney, our first annual alumni dinner. We had a nice gathering of about 200 of my former colleagues from the U.S. attorney's office, and it was an evening of camaraderie, fun, discussion, war stories, reliving old times. And there may or may not have been a beer involved. And, you know, I told them that when I speak on the podcast, I speak of them often. I think of them often. And I just wanted to mention not only my thanks to the folks in the podcast and to the listeners out there, but to the colleagues who helped make me who I am, who helped teach me what it means to be a public servant, and without whom I wouldn't be here. So when you're as lucky a guy as me, from time to time it's important to say, and I can do this because I have a studio and a microphone, to be thankful. So whatever you guys are doing out there, remember to be thankful for what you have, thankful for the people who listen to you, uh, even if you don't have a podcast, and thankful that you can have fun doing what you're doing. I feel very lucky. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Sally Jenkins. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Here's one from Ken Cosgrove. He calls the show, quote, a common sense approach slash analysis to our current political dumpster fire. 
And Gina Gina Smith, yes, two Ginas, says, I had no idea Comic Sans was uncool. Thanks for that. It's news you can use, folks. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, Tamar Sepper, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.